I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, you'll need a Bible as we go through our message today. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, then get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you and bring it back with you each Sunday. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word and have one as we look at it each Lord's Day. Genesis 37. I've said many times over the years that experience is the best teacher, and especially when it's someone else's experience. The reason I say it that way is the fact is you don't have to repeat the mistakes of others if you're wise enough to learn from them. This is why the Bible gives us so many stories of the lives of others so that we can be taught. Scripture says this, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And again, the Bible says these things and these things referring to the experiences of people in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Today, we're going to learn from the experience of others as recorded for our benefit in Scripture. And that benefit is seen as we respond as God wants us to, both to suffering, that is the things done to us through no fault of our own, and then also in our sin, the things that we do that are contrary to God's will. As we begin this eighth message now in the series titled, What's God Got to Do With It? Let's ask the Lord to help us to indeed learn from the examples that we're going to see together from his word. Father, we're thankful to you that we're here. Because we're here by your design and by your permission. We only have breath because of your permission. We only live in a country that grants freedom to assemble and to, and to worship you because you have placed us here. Lord, all that has preceded the ability for us to have this sacred moment comes from you. And so, therefore, we are thankful to you that we're here. We're thankful to you that we want to be here because it's you that's given us the desire to hear from you, to learn of you, and then to obey you. So help us to do all of those today as we look together at your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Steve Viers in his book, Putting Your Past in Its Place, offers four categories of God's work in our lives. And I'm indebted to that book for much of what I'll be saying this morning. In all of what takes place in our lives, God is at work to produce good for his people, whether we're suffering or whether we're sinning. And I have those two major two major categories under which there are four subcategories to each in the outline that is inserted in the program you should have received on your way in. We have that outline there every week. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. And we say there, first of all, that God will produce good when we are victims. Now, contrary to the <clears throat> false teachers that are all over so-called Christian television, the Bible does not teach that if you have faith, then all will go well with you. 
All, in fact, may not be well in our lives. But we can be well even when life is hard through no fault of our own. In the immortal words of the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And this is because of what I say in the outline. He's at work when we trust him. He's at work when we trust him. We'll see he's at work at other times as well, but he's at work, first of all, when we trust him. And we see this truth in the story of Joseph. Joseph was born when his father Jacob was of advanced age. Jacob had been given the name Israel by the Lord as recorded in Genesis chapter 32. And now verse 3 of chapter 37 says this. Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an an ornate robe for him. Now, Jacob had several reasons for his partiality toward Joseph. One commentator points out that that Jacob was a passive father, as indicated by his handling of his other 11 sons. And passive fathers tend to favor the child who's easiest to raise, and Joseph was just that. Joseph also had better character than his brothers. He was apparently morally revulsed at their behavior, and so verse 2 says this. He, Joseph, brought Jacob a bad report about them, his brothers. And in addition to that, Joseph's mother was Jacob's favorite wife. Yes, Jacob sinfully had two wives and he had children by yet other women. So Joseph was easy to parent, he was of good character, and he was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. And so Jacob foolishly shows him favoritism as seen in giving Joseph the ornate robe mentioned in verse 3. The robe, among other things, incensed Joseph's brothers. Verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, why would the robe so anger the brothers? Well, it represented favoritism, but it also probably separated Joseph from the others in another way. You see, the brothers were manual laborers. Verse 12 of chapter 37 says they tended Jacob's flocks. And this robe was a problem because wearing it made that kind of work impossible. Many commentators believe this robe went down to the ankles. A fresco from that period pictures important persons People like priests dressed in garments made of rectangular pieces of cloth of various colors sewn together into a long strip that's then wrapped around the body seven or eight turns from the ankles up to the chest and then draped over one shoulder. And so imagine Joseph standing there in all his regalia and his brothers tend the flocks. One has said, you can't work very well. In a garment like that, that extends all the way down to your ankles, especially if it's a costly, richly ornamented robe. It would be like sending a welder to a construction site wearing a full-length mink coat. In Joseph's day, the working garb was a short, sleeveless tunic. 
This left the arms and the legs free so that the workers could easily maneuver and move about. As you can imagine, by giving Joseph this elaborate full-length coat, which was also a sign of nobility in that day, his father was boldly implying, you can wear this beautiful garment because you don't have to work like those brothers of yours. The brothers despised Joseph so much that verse 4 says, they could not speak a kind word to him. And it got worse because of what happened beginning in verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Hmm. So what's what's Joseph doing here? Bragging, rubbing it in. Oh, by the way, did you guys notice the coat? I think Joseph was probably motivated to try and diffuse the tension when he related these dreams to his brothers. Each of the dreams had different symbols, but both had the same meaning. God was saying through the dreams that there would come a time when the brothers would be Joseph's servants. And Joseph took that as the revelation from God that it was, but his brothers did not. I think that by telling them of his dreams, Joseph was saying, we should really work this out because we're going to be together. And in fact, you should really rethink your hatred of me given what God has determined. Verses 5 and 8 say his brothers hated him because of this. Verse 11 says that they were jealous. So hate-filled and jealous were the brothers that they plotted to kill Joseph. They ultimately decided to make some money off of him rather than just kill him. So they sold him into slavery. And then they concocted a story for their father that he had been killed by an animal. Now imagine what Joseph had to be feeling as he was taken away by strangers because his brothers had sold him for 20 shekels of silver. That's the price they would have paid for a handicapped slave in those days. As a result of this, as the story unfolds, Joseph winds up in Egypt and his brothers go back home to Canaan. The brothers think that they're rid of Joseph, but God has made his promise about the future and of course God would keep it. So down in verse 36 of chapter 37. The Midianites, that is the people to whom the brothers had sold Joseph. The Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So Joseph has suffered at the hands of his jealous brothers. And now he's going to suffer at the hands of someone else. So please turn a few pages over to chapter 39. Now, Moses, or excuse me, Joseph has been sold into Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's been sold into his service. The Bible tells us in the beginning portion of chapter 39 that Joseph was such a stellar employee, as it were, that he rose in, in rank. 
And Potiphar came to trust Joseph implicitly with everything that he had. Verse 6. Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph is doing well despite his brother's intentions. And yet there's still more trouble ahead for him. Potiphar's wife sought to entice him sexually. But Joseph refused her advances. Verse 10. Though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, if if Joseph entertained these options, the text does not tell us, but one can easily imagine that he might reason something like this. After he's now in after he's now in Egypt, after he's been sold into slavery by his brothers, and they're back home, he might reason something like the prediction that God made about me ruling my brothers is clearly not going to happen. They don't even know where I am. We're never going to see each other again. So why follow God now? Perhaps his word cannot be trusted after all. I'm out here in Egypt and here's an opportunity. And after all, what happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. So who's going to know? You know, he may have been he may have been having going through his mind the words of that great theologian, Bob Seeger. We've got tonight. No one will care, girl. Look at the stars. So far away. But he knew and he believed that God would know. And so he continued to resist her temptations. And in her anger at being spurned, she made up a story about Joseph telling her husband Potiphar that Joseph had attacked her. And Joseph was thrown in prison. (laughs) So again, if you're Joseph, what are you thinking? Well, that's what you get for doing the right thing. Nice guys always finish last. Many of us would have thought. And it gets worse. Joseph not only suffered at the hand of his jealous brothers and at the hand of this evil temptress, he also suffers at the hands of some ungrateful colleagues In chapter 40. So if you'll turn over to chapter 40. While Joseph is in prison, he met two men who each had unusual dreams. They explained their dilemma to Joseph. That we've had these dreams and we want to know what they mean. And Joseph asked them in verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? And Joseph accurately interpreted their dreams with the simple request... Down in verse 14. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Do this. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But even so, after the dreams came true, just as Joseph had predicted, the men forgot about him and left him to rot in jail. So Joseph has been victimized over and over and over. But friends, here's the great news. That with God on the throne, our suffering is never the end of the story. In God's good providence, Joseph meets his brothers again many years later. By that time, Joseph is serving as the prime minister of Egypt, having been promoted by Pharaoh to the number two position in the nation. 
By God's design, a famine has gripped the region that includes Canaan and Egypt. And only Egypt has food because Joseph stockpiled it for the nation in response to God's revelation to him that this famine would be coming. Joseph's family came to Egypt for food. When his brothers saw saw him, they, they didn't even recognize him anymore. When he eventually revealed who he was to them, they rightly feared for their lives. <laughs> What's he going to do? What's he going to do to us now? And think and be honest about what you would do to them, given what they had done to him. And so they rightly feared for their lives. And yet the same man who showed godly character in Potiphar's house and also in prison and in Pharaoh's court did so again. Let me just stop and say, at the point of testing, friends, it's too late to develop character. Character is developed prior to the test, and the test reveals whether the character is there. If you'll turn to chapter 45. And verse 4. Here's Joseph's response. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Well, just hearing that first out of his mouth. Yep, we remember that. Yep, we're in trouble. But notice what he says next. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And the dream, the two dreams that Joseph had are now coming true. Now, Joseph very easily could have become bitter at his brothers. He could have taken the easy path with Potiphar's wife. He could have stopped believing in the power and the faithfulness of God when his brothers sold him into slavery. And when the opportunity arose, he could have exacted revenge on them. Joseph didn't choose any of those wrong responses because he refused to let suffering define his existence. You see, friends, all of us live out of a sense of identity. And the question for you, the question for me, is going to be at all times, in what identity do I live? Am I going to live and take as my identity what's happened to me? Or am I going to take as my identity what God says about me? What God promises to me. If you are someone who is, and I use this word advisedly, not to be unkind, but if you are someone who is wallowing in something or some things that have happened in the past, then you're failing to appropriate the identity that God has given you. We all live out of a sense of identity. The question is, what is yours? Sometimes those who struggle with alcohol, alcoholics, 
are told to say to themselves, I'm an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic. I understand the sentiment for that. But please understand that as a child of God, you don't want to constantly remind yourself of your circumstance, especially your negative circumstances, and say, that's what I am. I'm a divorcee or I'm a widow or a widower. That all is true and it all affects us and it all has to be dealt with. But what we regularly have to remind ourselves of is our identity in Jesus Christ. And be motivated by that. Joseph didn't choose any of these wrong responses because he refused to let suffering define who he was. His response to being sinned against brought great honor and glory to his God, the one who gave him the strength to follow his will and to accomplish his plan. So what has God got to do with it? That's the title of this series. Well, Joseph was God-centered. He believed God's promise. So for him, the answer was, God's got everything to do with it, and so I will follow God through anything. You hear that, friends? If God has everything to do with it, then we can and we will follow this God through anything. So God will produce good when we are victims, as Joseph was. He's at work when we trust him, but he's also at work, as I say in the outline, when we are bitter. He's at work when we trust him, but also when we are bitter. I invite you to turn. To the book of Ruth. The eighth book in your Bible. So just turn to the right until you come to that eighth book. It's page 224 in the Bibles that we distribute. And Steve Weiss succinctly tells the story. The curtain opens in the Old Testament book of Ruth to the horrifying news that during a time of famine in Israel, Naomi's husband and two married sons die in the country of Moab where they had gone to live. And that part of the story summarized with these sobering words in verse 5 of chapter 1. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In the midst of her grief, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, who were from Moab, set out to return to the land of Judah. At some point along the journey, Naomi encouraged her daughters-in-law to go back to their own people and to their own gods. Now, this statement gives us an important insight into the way Naomi's processing her grief and her difficulty. For her in that moment, the true and living God of Israel was no better than the false gods of the nations. Even though Ruth had been raised in a different culture, in a different religious system, she respectfully disagreed with her mother-in-law's pluralistic assessment. She said famously in verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. In the next scene, the two, now two, Orpah has, has gone back, so it's now Ruth and Naomi, and these two impoverished widows arrive back in Naomi's homeland and the town of Bethlehem. And the imagery is striking in light of the fact that the name of the town Bethlehem 
means house of bread. And so here they are destitute. But they're going back now to the house of bread. And verse 19 of chapter 1 says, When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Naomi's answer speaks volumes about how she was choosing to respond to the painful suffering of the past. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, the Hebrew word Mara literally means bitter. And in this moment of self-reflection, Naomi summarizes her life by declaring that its defining characteristic for her is this bitterness. The rest of the book explains that, though, there is a far better way of handling the pain and the suffering of the past. That God is worthy of one's trust and love even in life's hardest moments. God orchestrates the next events in Ruth's life as he did in Joseph's, this in a way that's tender and sweet, and it culminates with a wonderful love story of his faithful provision of a godly husband in Boaz for her. Ruth was right in choosing the path of steadfast love for the God of Israel. And after Ruth and her new husband gave birth to their first child, the women of the city say this to Naomi in chapter 4. In verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. The baby boy is laid in Naomi's lap and the tale ends with words that Prove yet again that God is at work the entire time. Verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And so here in all of this, through all of this that transpired with Naomi and her family, Abimelech, her husband, who had foolishly moved the family, From Judah to Moab in the midst of a famine. God had given some prohibitions about going to to Moab, but he did so anyway. Tragedy befalls them. Elimelech, I said Abimelech, Elimelech died. And then the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi both die. And these three widows are, are left. And yet in all of that, God is orchestrating his plan. In all of the difficulty and the trial, God is orchestrating his plan. The great God who provides for his people sovereignly designed these painful events in a way that resulted in this family being in the ancestral line of the great Redeemer, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was also born in the house of bread. In Bethlehem. Naomi's response to the suffering of her past was to be bitter. And that became a significant part of her story. Friends, she could have and should have responded differently. Joseph did. 
Joseph was so committed to worshiping God, even in the midst of suffering, that Potiphar, his fellow prisoners, even Pharaoh, were able to witness God's power at work. On the other hand, Naomi encouraged her daughters-in-law to return to their families and to their gods. She claimed that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When the women of Bethlehem ask, is this Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Almighty has dealt with me bitterly. Both Joseph and Naomi fit under the heading of people with innocent pasts because there's no biblical reason to believe that they did anything to bring on their affliction. But that's where the similarities between them stop. Joseph allowed God to give him the strength to handle suffering well. Naomi chose the opposite path and the result was a bitter heart. And yet... Even in her sinful response, God was at work for good. Aren't you thankful for that? That even when we are faithless, God remains faithful to his people. In her sinful response, God was at work for good. She eventually saw her past through a different lens. And as a result, God's name became famous. You see, friends, we can only see, because of our narrow perspective, our limited perspective, we can only see through a narrow lens the events that occur to us, the things that happen to us. We can only see the thing. And if all you see is the thing, then you get mired in that. Your life becomes about that. But God, in telling us these stories wants to broaden our perspective. And though we can't have the perspective he has, he has an infinite perspective on everything that's happening. He wants us to see more than just the thing that's happening to us. And further, he wants us to trust, hear this, that he sees every last connection to it. Everything that preceded it, everything that he's doing in it, everything that will come out of it. God has the ability to see through two lenses. We only see through one. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards taught this about God, that he has this ability to see through two lenses. He can see through the narrow lens like we do, and he can see the event and all of its pain and all of its sin and all of its misery and all of its suffering. He can see that. But God has another lens, the widest possible lens. In which he sees everything that comes before, happens in, and will come out of what's going on in our lives. As a result of that, a Christian can honestly say that even when difficulty occurs, as it does in a fallen world to all of us, even when difficulty occurs, the Christian can honestly say it's all good. Yes, the thing is bad. Yes, the misery is real. Yes, the suffering can be intense. But ultimately, it's all good. Theologian R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Invisible Hand, describes four kinds of actions. Four kinds of actions that relate to this whole idea of it being, yes, evil in the instance, the narrow lens, but ultimately it's all good. He has, first of all, he calls the first type of action, 
of the four, good, good. So there's good, but then he's using good as a modifier for it. There's the good type of good. And the good type of good is goodness conceived in the full biblical sense. It's the good that not only perfectly fulfills the outward law of God, the outward requirements of God, it not only just does the right things, but it proceeds from a a perfect internal love for God. It's God at work producing good by his spirit. That's good, but it's good for the right reasons. It's good, good. Well, then he's got another type of good. There's bad good. I mean, there's, it's, the action is good, but the motive is not. It's good that outwardly performs to the law of God, the requirements of God, but it's motivated by impure motives. It's self-centered rather than God-centered. It's sinful humanity acting apart from faith in God to accomplish things that might be good, but the means and the motivations are bad. So the thing might be good, but it's never for the ultimately right motive of bringing glory to God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just what we do wrong, it's why we do what we do. And failing to do it for the glory of God. So there's good, good, there's, there's bad, good. And then, of course, there's the things, those two categories are when things that are done are good, but then there's when the things that are done are bad. And there's bad, bad. I mean, what's done is not a good thing for the wrong reasons. What's done is a sinful thing, which, of course, when a sinful thing is done, it's always for the wrong reasons. So this is evil or badness that has no salutary aspect to it. It's unmitigated evil. But then there's this final category. This final category is the one, friends, that we need to grasp. If we're truly going to live what we say we believe, that God is in control. It's good, bad. That is, the things are bad. The events are bad. The circumstance is bad. Difficult. And yet in it, God is working good. This is the bad that we experienced that's redeemed by God's providence. God brings good out of the evil that we experience. And often these blessings are, as we say, blessings in disguise and extremely well disguised. You can't see through your narrow lens what's coming out of this. You can't see precisely how God is working it together for good. The question is, do you believe that? Has God told you enough in his word? Has God shown you enough in your experience that he is a good God who gives good things to his children? So God brings good out of the evil we experience, but these blessings are sometimes extremely well disguised, so much so that we can barely see the slightest possible good in them. But what we have is a promise from God that these bad things within the providence of God are being used by him for our good. These blessings may indeed be heavily veiled by disguise, but they are blessings nonetheless when we see them from the perspective of God's truth and promises. And friends, it's only then that you'll be able to truly believe the verse that many of you have needle-pointed. Some of us would say this is our, this is our life verse. 
It's the famous Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. So do you believe that? And in your circumstance, are you believing that? Have you been believing that? Many of you have a thing, perhaps some things, that have happened to you in your past that plague you, that that are carried around with you, and you've never dealt with them with this biblical, God-centered perspective. God is working something good. Now, precisely what that's going to be, I don't know, but I guarantee you, based upon the truthfulness of the true and living God, that he will. In the case of Joseph and in the case of Naomi, both of them had the opportunity to see it to see it happen. They both had the opportunity to see it take place. You may not see the good that God is working out in your lifetime. Maybe later, maybe after you're after you're gone. But God will use you, God will use your influence, even if it's Unknown to you. God will use it for good. And so are we satisfied in that? Lord, be glorified in my life. Come what may, come whatever it is that you must do in order for that to happen. I have people come for counseling often because of their circumstances. And I don't know what God is precisely going to do in the particular situation that he has allowed into their lives, a situation in which they are victimized, in which they are suffering. And so I make no claim of knowing precisely what will happen. I can claim this. As I've said, God will do it. God will work it for good. And I often quote for them 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in any trouble, so that in our troubles, so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Do you see the promise that God's making there? That as I deal with you in this, I will use you as my instrument to help others in their difficulty as well. God will use you as his instrument. But it will only happen as God intends. In God's moral will, it will only happen as God intends as you believe that God is at work and you obey God in the midst of the difficulty. God will produce good when we are victims. And in your outline, there's a second point. God will produce good in another set of circumstances that we will talk about next week. So for this week, I urge you, as we bow before the Lord, to think about the situations that God has placed you in. And think about the things that you have carried around with you and how you have processed those things and whether or not you have believed that God is at work and that this God is at work for good. If not... Let us confess that to the Lord and then give that to the Lord and profess our faith, our belief 
that the Lord is indeed at work and he will use this for our good in his glory. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us, for allowing us to consider these truths from your word about you, about your objectives in all that you do, to bring yourself glory, to display your character to your people and to the world that you have made, and to use us in that process, to display your character to us, but to display your character through us as well. Lord, these good purposes of your moral will are accomplished through our obedience, through our belief in what you have promised and in who you are. And so I ask you, Lord, to work in the hearts of my brothers and sisters who have gone through things perhaps many years ago that they are still carrying with them, that they have failed to place into the larger lens, the larger perspective of what you are doing and the good that you seek to accomplish through it. And as a result, those purposes are not, those objectives are not being achieved as our God desires. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause each of us in that situation to confess, to ask your forgiveness, to grant us this wider perspective on you and what you are doing. Lord, help us to do that not only with what's happened in the past, but now to move forward with confidence in the future. Because living in a fallen world means there's going to be other things. Help us to approach those other things with a new God-centered perspective. To pursue life, as it were, as an adventure that you are are our guide for. And around each corner, you know exactly what's there. You will never leave us nor forsake us, and you will accomplish your purposes in them. As a result of all of that, grow us and bring glory to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.